You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, good morning. How many of you have ever been on an ocean liner, a boat, a cruise ship, something like that? Uh, how many of you have ever been on a boat in the fog? A couple of you. All right, now if you're on a small craft, I can't imagine that there's few things scarier than navigating in the fog because the consequences are pretty huge. I mean, you just can't see, like, where is land? Is there something floating in the water? Is there a sandbar? What's going on? It gets a little sketchy, a little scary. We've had some foggy days this week. One of the things that's interesting is we hear headlines. Headlines that decry the, the tragedy of a ship like Titanic or uh, the Costa uh, Concordia. And we begin to hear these like headlines and we instantly think, well, I'm sure that they did everything they could to take care of the people on that ship. However, I want you to know something that's an interesting fact that I didn't know like a week ago. I did not know because I looked it up. I did not know that there is no maritime law that actually states that a captain must go down with the ship or be the last one off. Did you know that? That there is actually no maritime law that actually states specifically that a captain must go down with the ship or be the last one off. And in, on August 3rd in 1991, an explosion shook the cruise ship Oceanus as it sailed off of South Africa. It was a Greek ship, but it was sailing off of South Africa and, and the captain and the crew quickly determined Uh, that there was a gash in the side of the ship, that the ship began to list, and that all hope was lost. And so they put out word to abandon ship. The only problem was the crew got in the boats and left. So more than 200 people were stuck on the boat and wondering, like, are we going to get off? Because literally the crew members jumped on board the, the lifeboats and they drove off. And fortunately, it wasn't that far off the coast, and so helicopters came to the rescue. And these helicopters swooped in, and they put down their ropes to start airlifting people off of the sinking ship. And the first person lifted off was the captain. <laughs> Leaving about 200 people on the ship, still wondering and fearing for their lives. Like, how's this going to go? How's this going to happen? And, and the helicopters came to the rescue, and, and later in an interview, the captain said, quote, when I give the order to abandon ship, It doesn't matter what time I leave. Abandon is for everybody. If some people want to stay, they can stay. And that was his thing. It's almost like he just went like this, right? He just almost like, hey, real caring guy. Real caring guy, by the way. It's just interesting to me that there is no specific maritime law that says that, hey, the captain ought to be the last one off to make sure everybody's safe and get on board. That's more of a Hollywood idea than it's a reality idea in the world. And sometimes in life, impossible situations make you look at the damage and determine that potentially all hope is lost. And when that happens, things fall off, right? When that happens at that moment, people start to think, well, I'm just going to take care of myself. It's every man or woman for themselves. And they begin to take care of life and take care of situations. And Peter is beginning to write to people who have begun to feel like that hope is dead, that every person should look out for themselves, that culture has turned against them. They are being persecuted, not just ostracized in culture, but actually persecuted in culture. And they're feeling this firsthand, and they're beginning to think that hope is gone, that all hope is lost. And Peter is writing to people who are feeling and acting that way and reminding them. He's shouting out statements that begin to ring out like headlines, saying, don't lose hope, that you and I, we have a living hope. Hope. 
Not a hope that's dead, not a hope that's temporary, but one that is living and will live eternally, one that is guaranteed in heaven for us. And he begins to teach us in the book of 1 Peter how to live victoriously in the midst of hostility without losing hope or without becoming bitter while trusting in the Lord as we wait for his second coming. Now, Peter's going to convince you and me that by living an obedient, victorious life while under duress can actually evangelize and help save a hostile world. He's going to say our time on life is short on this earth. But for those of you who have eternal life through a relationship with Jesus, this life is so small in comparison to the life that we'll live there. And so don't lose hope. You have a living hope. In fact, we looked last week at the message translation at the key verse in the passage. It says this, because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. These people are believing that my future is in jeopardy. My future is maybe even not, it's really at stake at this time. And so he's saying, listen, I've got to know. I've got to know that there's a hope. I've got to know that there's a future. And Peter is expressing to these people, listen, you have a living hope. And the future starts now. He describes how great our salvation is through Jesus Christ. So great that angels long to peer into these things. They want to know the dates and times. They, want to, they get a first row view of all that happens when you and I are saved. And Peter's saying, since we have so great a salvation, he picks up in verse 13, saying, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your what? Your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. If you're taking notes today, and I encourage you to, your first point in the outline is this. Those who've been given salvation and a living hope by God must live like they actually have hope. If you and I have been given a living hope by God, if our trust and our security has been placed in God, then you and I ought to live as if we have a living hope. Have you ever met a believer who doesn't live like they have living hope? They think God has given them a living mope. They're just very, very serious. They're just mm, down all the time. They're always broken. Uh, they just don't have any joy in their life. They're way too, they can't worship expressively. There's not a lot of joy. Um, they're really good, by the way, really good at judging. And they're not too good at staying or sticking around or having longevity when things get hard. A living mope. And sometimes people look at people who are Christians and say, are you sure God's giving you hope? Because you don't look like you're living with hope. You react the same way the world reacts. Hey, what Peter is talking about is not the opposite. The opposite would be, instead of a living mope, that you'd be the person who's tried to be happy all the time. Oh no, things never shake me. I'm happy all the time. You have a smile on your face and you're just fake and you're just, oh, I'm just happy. And people just write you off like, in the world, that's not real. Peter's saying, listen, persecution's real. Struggles are real. Life is gonna squeeze you. And what he's talking about is a living hope that leads to joy even in trials, even in your impossible situation, even when it's outside your control. He's talking about placing our confidence in God. It means that you and I, to live differently, to live like we have hope, means you and I are going to react differently than the world does to impossible situations. 
See, you can kind of gauge your hope by your reactions. You can gauge your hope based on how you react. Do you react like the world to very real obstacles? This week in Hawaii, yesterday as a matter of fact, everybody on their mobile device got a notification that said, imminent missile threat, find shelter now, this is not a drill. And for 38 minutes, it was absolute chaos. People literally thought, we're, gonna, we're dead. Here it comes, I have 30, I've got you know, 15 minutes or whatever to live. And they scrambled, they were driving on the wrong side of the road, they were trying to get with people they knew, they tried to find shelter wherever they could. And then finally, an alert came back on their device that says, there is no missile threat, false alarm, there is no alarm, everything's cool. Later, the governor said, an employee pushed the wrong button. My first thought when I heard that, job opening. <laughs> if any of you are looking to move to the islands, I think, think there's at least one job open for you. But it shows us, do we react like the world reacts? If the end were imminent, how would you react? Would you react to someone who has a living hope or would you react to someone who has their confidence in God even as you're taking responsibility in a dangerous situation? How do you react? By, based on how you and I react, it really reveals where our hope is. Number two, living with hope means I will not conform to the evil desires like everyone else does and like I used to. Peter says it this way, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so what? Help me out here, so what? Be holy in all that you do, for it's written, be holy because I am holy, and that's God speaking of himself. He's saying, you be holy because I am holy. Now, when you hear that verse, it raises problems for a lot of people because you instantly think of where you're unholy. You begin to think of what you've done wrong. God says, be holy, and you think, ah, I'm not holy. And remember, holiness, that right standing with God is given us based on faith through Christ, not on the merit of our works. So what happens is your identity is that you are holy, and what Peter is saying is, because God has declared you holy through Christ's righteousness that was traded to you, when you traded your sins and your shame to him that he bore on the cross, he gave you something. You gave him that stuff, but he gave you something, and what he gave you is right standing with God, righteousness, holiness. So Peter's saying, because your identity is holy, because that's who you really are, start to live like you really are. And notice this verse does not say, um, do not be tempted to conform. It says, do not conform. Are we going to be tempted? Yes. You and I still live in a body of flesh. Our identity is that we're righteous before God when we put our faith in Christ. But we're still going to struggle with a body of death, a body that's temporary until we go to heaven. So are we going to be tempted to conform to the world? Are we going to be tempted to do exactly what the world does? Yes, and powerfully so. You're not human if you're not tempted to do exactly what everybody else is doing. You're not human if you're not tempted in powerful ways to give into that which is not holy. But what it says is, do not conform. It doesn't say don't be tempted. We're all going to be tempted. It's saying this, when tempted, and later in Corinthians, Paul writes, 
that when we're tempted, we have a way out so that we can endure it. We don't face different temptations than anybody else. But God will give us a way out so that we can bear up under it. What Peter is saying is, when you think that you have no hope, it's easy to turn to sin. It's easy to turn to self-reliance when you think you have no hope. But because you have a living hope, and your obedient children do not conform, do not become, do not exactly identify with everything that the world does and everything the world puts its hope in. Put your hope in God. The issue is this. Are you a fan of Jesus Christ? I love Jesus. I would like him on Facebook, right? You might say, hey, I love Jesus. I love my church. I love, I love those kind of songs that they sing. I love Jesus. I, but are you a fan of Jesus or are you a follower of Jesus? You'd be like, I love Jesus. Look at my Bible. I got this nice Bible and it just sits there. But are you, do you open it? Are you a follower of Jesus? The issue Peter is saying is, are you a fan of Christ or are you a follower? So don't conform to the evil desires that you're going to be tempted with. Don't conform to the evil desires that used to master you before you knew Jesus. Third, living with hope means I will be holy. In other words, my identity is holy, but now I'm going to act like God declares what I mean, that since we have such a great salvation, this salvation actually empowers us to obey Christ, to not be under the trappings of sin's enslavement, and to be holy through the Holy Spirit internal work in our life. He is renewing us day by day. Now, on the inside of us, we all have a spirit. The outside is a shell, and if you were to pass away, you would say that person, you would, you would, you know, look, someone would look at you and say, your spirit has left the building. You're not there anymore. This is just your shell. It's a rental. But I got to tell you, God, when we accept Christ into our life, gives us his Holy Spirit. Which means that spirit you have inside you, before you know Christ, you've got a spirit in you, but it's not a Holy Spirit. It's just not holy, is it? And we would shake our heads and go, no, it's actually not. I have sinned. I have done wrong things. My sin does separate me from a holy, righteous, having never sinned God. It's hard. Even when you have the Holy Spirit in you, when you're tempted to do wrong. Maybe you heard about the guy. He was kind of just given into his, his flesh. He promised his wife he wouldn't go back and be drinking at the bar because whenever he drunk at the bar, he would get in fights. And, and he went one night to the bar and he got drunk and he got in fights. And just being honest, this guy didn't, he thought he won, but let's be honest, he lost. And he got cut a bunch and he got home and he's like, oh no, my wife is gonna, she's asleep, but she's gonna find out. So we went in the bathroom and he washed his face everywhere and he took out band-aids and he bandaged all his wounds you know, all over to kind of hide them. And then he snuck in and he got in the covers and he went to bed. Next day, his wife got up before him. She came into the room and she said, you went to the bar last night and got in fights, didn't you? And he said, no, no, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. She said, well, who put Band-Aids all over the mirror in the bathroom? <laughs> we try to cover up. We try to think we can manage it. And God's saying, instead of trying to, in your own power and own effort, just resist temptation, cooperate with God's Holy Spirit. Be a Christ follower. 
Why don't we live holy? It's easy. It's easy to get tired. It's easy to do what the world wants us to do. It's, it's easier to do what the world wants to do when we see all the movies that the world sees. It's easier to do what the world does when we listen to all the music that the world listens to. It's easy for us to do what the world does when we go to all the places that the world says to go to, to engage in those activities. It's easy for us to align ourselves in our mind and our heart to love the world more than we love God. Then we have social media, and social media shows you every place that you should go and all the things you should do and all the people who look like maybe they're happy when in fact they're putting their best face forward. They're putting their hope in things that are temporary. They're putting hope in their young beauty. They're putting hope in their young strength. They're putting hope in their ability to travel and do different things. They're putting hope in their material possessions. They're putting hope in their arrogance. They're putting hope in things that won't last. And God is calling us to put our hope in an everlasting hope, a real source, an eternal source for us. The difference is this, you and I begin to behave like the world, but that is a symptom. When you and I begin to behave like everybody else does, that's a symptom because the source is in whom have you put your hope. If you're like, God, I think maybe you failed me. And you're going to say, I'm going to take care of myself because things didn't work out how I wanted them to and it didn't work on my timetable. And so, God, I'm going to control my life and I'm going to put my hope in myself and then you're going to chase after things that don't last. Peter is saying, even in the midst of persecution, even when life squeezes you, don't go back. Don't go back to conforming like the world like you used to and I used to. Don't go back. Keep following Jesus. He says this in verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as what? Foreigners here in reverent fear. For we know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. He's a lamb without any blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but it was revealed in these last times for your sake. And through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Write this down on your outline. I'm not a citizen of earth trying to get to heaven. I'm a citizen of heaven just living on earth. Peter says you and I are foreigners. We are not of this world. That when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you become a child of God. You're now a citizen of heaven. Heaven is your citizenship, not the American dream. And let me tell you, sometimes we get those two confused. We think that if I become a citizen in heaven, God should enable me to live the entire American dream. And I gotta let you know that those two are not always compatible. Sometimes the American dream, the securities, the comforts, the safeties can become idolatry. You say, what do you mean? Well, we begin to bow down and worship things that we think will give us security. Worship things that will give us safety. And maybe we say, God, I'm, I'm not willing to relinquish that relationship because that person makes me feel good. God, I'm not willing to let go of those resources because 
It's my security. I got to have that put away for a rainy day or for whatever else. And we begin to say, God, I'm going to put my trust in relationships and popularity and people and material possessions and all sorts of things. And what happens? We begin to worship them. Not that you're bowing down and worshiping them, but you are putting your hope in what you don't yet have. Sometimes you do have it, and it has you. The more of what we have has us. And Peter's saying, listen, now that persecution has started, the things that these people have put their security in were shaken. And, and now their security as a whole gets shaken. He's saying, you have a living hope. You're not a citizen of earth trying to get to heaven. You're a citizen of heaven just living on earth. And it's temporary in the scope of eternity. We're not on this world for long in the scope of eternal life with Christ. This life on earth Let's say you're 70, 80, 90, 100 years. It's a blink in the scope of eternity. And yet we elevate this life to an importance that it should not have. Because this is all a rental. It's a shell. People sometimes think that God had to send Jesus because people screwed up and it was a surprise. So they think God was like, I made this creation. They were great. Satan came into the garden, tempted Adam and Eve. They sinned. I had to kick them out of the garden. Now death begins on earth. And now the consequences of sin begin on earth. And God probably, some people will think, God probably was like, oh no. Oh no. What am I going to do? And maybe for several thousand years he thought about it. And then all of a sudden was like, I got it. God will become flesh in the person of Jesus. I'll take everybody's sin on myself on the cross. I'll pay for their sin debt. And then they can believe in me and have everlasting life. But this verse, this passage tells us a different story, a true story. And this is what this passage says. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but it was revealed in these times for your sake. He's saying Jesus was chosen to die for you before the creation of the world. Let that sink in for a minute. God didn't have to go and suffer simply because of your sin. But before the creation of the world, God being loving was incredibly loving. His love even before the creation of the world was sacrificial. His love already was sacrificial before the creation of the world. And as such, he knew in creating the world there would come a time when as an expression of his sacrificial love for you, he would go and stretch his arms out and be hung on a cross. And he who had no sin, no defect, no blemish, like a perfect lamb that got chosen for sacrifice, that he would take that on the cross and satisfy God's righteous wrath against sin. Before the creation of the world, what does that tell you and me? Listen to it. When you think you have no hope, listen, God has been working for your good before the creation of the world. He has been looking for what is best in your life before the creation of the world. God had a heart to redeem you and make you holy, even though you and I live in a shell of sin since the creation of the world. That's how great God's love is for you. So he tells us to revere God. He said, live as foreigners here in reverent fear. What does the word revere mean? It doesn't mean Paul Revere running throughout the land with a lantern saying, the British are coming, the British are coming, right? It's not what Revere means. Revere means 
almost literally the word, it means the awe of sons. It's like little boys looking up at their dad. Dad can do anything, right? Years ago when our kids were being babysat, the babysitter overheard another child come up to one of my boys and say, hey, my dad is six foot two. To which one of my sons replied, oh yeah, my dad is 34. (laughs) What's that? That's the awe of sons, right? That's revering. What it means is that we're, we're to come before God in revering a reverent and awesome awe, fear. Now, the word fear there is actually phobos, from where we would get the word phobia. But this is not talking about the kind of phobia that is paralyzing or makes people cower in fear before God. We're told to approach God's throne with confidence because of Jesus, that we don't need an intermediary between us and the Father, that Jesus is that intermediary. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through a prophet. You don't have to go through a guru. All you got to do is just directly talk to God, and he will hear you, even if you've been running from him all your life. But what it means is having an awesome respect in how we live because we're in God's presence. We revere God because he is the judge. It says he judges without, partial, uh, without partiality. He judges each work impartially. We revere God because we're gonna let his word have first claim on our behavior and on our lives. We revere God when we participate with the Holy Spirit's work on the inside of making us holy. It's part of our act of worship that we sacrificially work with the Holy Spirit to do what is right. We revere God when we keep coming back, when we keep repenting, when we keep turning away from our sins and turning back to God, when we start following him again. And and what happens is this. Our sins begin to tell us to not turn back to God because you revere him. You have a reverent fear. So you come to church and you're like, Oh, I don't know if I should be in here because I know what I've done, and I know what I've done is unholy. I know I don't have it all together. I know I don't even know where it all is. And so your sin and the condemnation of the evil one will tell you don't revere God. Don't turn back to him. Don't walk with him. And the scripture tells us something opposite. It tells us that when you and I have worshiped other things for our security, What does that mean? It means we obeyed the evil desires we had when we used to live in ignorance. We maybe went back to them. And maybe it was that we got tempted and we gave in. Maybe it was that we're putting our security in things that just won't last. When those things happen in our lives, we begin to bow down to them. We begin to worship them. You are what makes me secure. You are what makes me okay. Like, honestly, sometimes it's as simple as our reputation and we worship it. (gasps) What will people think of me? Oh, I don't know. And it keeps you from turning back to God. I want to suggest something to you. That you and I have worshipped our way into sin. And what we need to do is worship our way out of sin. That we come before God. We don't ignore God. That's what the enemy wants. That's why he accuses you on the inside. You think those are your thoughts, but it's the enemy saying, don't turn back. Don't go to God. Don't worship him. You should just keep your mouth shut. You should stand there with your hands in your pockets. Like, don't do anything because you, you know, you know God's probably not happy with you. And that's what the enemy says. But the scripture tells us 
to turn away from the things that we've been worshiping and turn around and worship the living God. And so we've worshiped our way into sin. We need to worship our way out. How do you do that? You and I begin to worship our way out by just turning back to a compassionate God. That means we keep repenting. We keep turning away from our sins and following Jesus. We don't give up. We worship our way back into obedience. We begin again. And maybe today, the only thing that you need to hear is that God is calling you to worship your way back into the intimacy of your relationship with him. And maybe, maybe this morning you kind of stood there and heard you know, great music up here and you thought about that, but worship isn't just singing. Worship is when we sacrifice. God, I sacrifice doing what I want and I'm gonna give it up in worship. I'm gonna offer that to you, saying no to myself so that I could say yes to you. Other times, it, maybe you need to give yourself in the car permission to turn off what you've been listening to and turn on that Christian music and sing along. You need to worship the Lord. If you've worshiped your way into sin, man, the greatest thing, the way back to your heart is to worship your way back to the Lord. When we do that, then we begin to love other people with right motives. So he tells us in 1 Peter 1.22, previously he says, living with hope means I will love others deeply. I will love others deeply. When we're living for security or ourselves, then we love people for what we can get from them. Will you accept me? Will you give me something? Will you help me? Because maybe persecution for these people has started and they're looking to just anybody. Well, if, if God can't keep me safe, I gotta look for somebody who will. And they're looking for rescue. But living with hope means I'm gonna love people deeply. Peter said it this way, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart in other words, you may have had a sacrificial love toward other people. You might have had an obligatory love. Well, I, I just need to do this because I got to be nice to you. Or you might do this because you want other people to think well of you. But there's nothing like getting squeezed that will test is your love and the motive of your love sincere. Is it real? He says this, having purified yourselves, this is a past perfect, which means it happened in the past and it continues to be happening. It happened, it's a done deal, but it's being worked out over the scope of time, but it doesn't change the original fact. So he's saying, now that you have purified yourselves, you're going, well, I, I'm not done in that. Well, that's exactly what you should feel. That's what that means. It's a past perfect. You've been declared righteous by God. And over the course of your life and my life, we participate with God's Holy Spirit in doing the next right thing. And as we do that, guess what happens? We start to love one another deeply from the right motives. We actually really love people. So instead of division among Christians, there's a brotherly love, there's a sacrificial love, a generous love. This year is the year of generosity. As a church, we're going to look at the issue of generosity over the course of this year, and we're going to say, how can we, we love people in word and deed? How can we, in a generous way, love people? That it really makes a difference in how we love other people. And that generosity is there. I, I got to tell you, there is nothing like persecution that will make people mistrust and mistreat other people. 
right? If you're getting persecuted, you're like, who do I trust? You see a Christian turn in a Christian in the authorities, maybe in, in Peter's day, you're seeing people betray one another, you're like, who do I trust? And you stop loving people, you back away. There's nothing like persecution to make people mistrust and mistreat one another. Jesus understands. He loved Judas. He brought him into his inner circle. He walked with him and let him have a first row seat to the kingdom of God for over three years. At the end, Judas thought the wheels are coming off this thing. This guy, Jesus, is never going to become a political king. And so I'm going to go turn him in so I get some money for myself. And he betrays Jesus, pointing him out to the authorities by giving him a kiss on the cheek, a greeting in the Middle East. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. And yet, it didn't stop him. He kept going. Has hurt from a religious person stopped you from loving people deeply? You could get hurt by a religious organization. You could get hurt by a person who proclaims to know Jesus. You could get hurt by a person and have misunderstanding. Why? Because we're fallen. But has getting hurt caused you to mistreat people and mistrust them? Or are you living and reacting to that hurt like you've got a living hope? Are you sheltering in saying, I I don't have a hope, so I'm going to take care of myself, and I'm mad at those people and the ways they mistreated me? Or are you going to say... I have a living hope. And it's not in those people, it's in a God. And we're gonna love, and even when persecution happens, people pull together in amazing ways. You always see the two sides of persecution, right? You see the side of persecution, which is people betraying one another and the awful side of it. You see the other side where people are rescuing one another, people are loving one another, people are sacrificing themselves for one another. They're acting a lot like Jesus. You've got a living hope. So living with hope means I will read, love, and study the living and enduring word of God. Why should I read this book? Why should I follow Jesus, the word of God, the word John 1 tells us became flesh and dwelt among men? Why should I follow Jesus? Why should I read this book? I'll tell you why. You know why you should regularly read this book? It's because life doesn't stop and life depletes hope daily. Every day life is gonna deplete hope. It's gonna happen. Life is gonna squeeze you. It's going to take our hope away. So every day you need to be reminded that you have a living hope that you need to be sustained by the word of God. Peter says it this way, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And then he quotes the Old Testament, for all people are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. What is he saying? He's saying, People and this life are like the grass in Elk Grove. It gets green, it gets brown. It gets green, it gets brown. The wildflowers come up, and then the summer heat that I guarantee you is like a straight sunbeam from the sun right at Sacramento. There's like a little magnifying glass somewhere in space between us and that sun. It hits it, and what happens? Mm, Flowers fall. 
grass withers, dries up. But he's saying your hope is not a temporary hope. You have an eternal hope. It will never perish. It is a living and active and enduring word of God. And when people lose hope, they lose the will to live. When they used to study people who had been involved in concentration camps during World War II, the people they would interview would say this, as soon as a person lost purpose or the hope for life, they died with almost within 48 hours. They either were executed, they lost their will to live, they gave up on living and they could watch their bodies shut down because purpose is, ex- is everything. If you lose your purpose, if you lose your reason for living, then why go on? You're going to turn to whatever else you think will give you hope. And when these people are being persecuted, Peter's own wife being crucified in front of him, and after he wrote this, the second book, Second Peter, his life, was, he was martyred for the Lord. He's not exempt from it, but in that he had a living hope. It was an enduring hope. He still had purpose even in the persecution that he faced. And this book, God's Word, is a living hope. It gives us a guaranteed future, and it communicates to us through the Word, the Bible. Listen, this book is not a textbook. I never got to the end of a textbook and thought, that was great. I want to read that again. (laughs) Never did. But this book, I want to read it and read it every day because daily life is going to deplete hope. So if I'm not going to react like the world, i got to know that I have a hope. I gotta be reminded all the time that I have a living hope. That's why we need the word of God. What is the word of God for? The word of God sustains life. The word of God is nourishment to the believer. It's nourishment. And I gotta say, how nourished are you? Do you eat once a week here in church? See, sometimes when we ask ourselves the question, am I a fan of God or am I a follower of God? We have to have a little coaching with ourselves, a little talk with ourselves, and this is what we have to say. I will no longer put up with a malnourished spirituality. I'm not content to live spiritually malnourished any longer. Like, I gotta stop being okay with that. I gotta stop being okay with not reading the Bible. I gotta stop being okay with being spiritually malnourished. We just kind of slide into our thing and go, I can do okay. I can coast through life. I'm doing all right. I don't know that I need that every day. And then life squeezes you. And in those times you realize you have malnourished faith. You need a living hope. This book, Jeremiah 15, 16, tells us that this book is our joy. The words of God are our joy and our delight. Uh, People say, well, what's in it for me? If I read this book, is there something in this for me? Yes. This book is your guide to future heavenly reward. You want to be rewarded by God richly in heaven? You need to read this book. Because it's the guide that tells you how to live in a way that God will honor based on how you leveraged what you would put your trust in on earth and offer it to him for heaven. And this living word of God will transform your life. And if you and I are being honest, your life needs transformation, doesn't it? I mean, don't we all on the inside out? We need our life to be transformed. We need to have a living hope. When I was young and and this idea of having a relationship with God started taking hold of my life, I was in junior high. And I don't know where I heard it. I probably heard it somewhere, but I wrote it in my Bible. And subsequently, I've written it in every Bible I've had over the years. 
And the statement is this, it says this, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Isn't that true? This book is our guide. It'll keep us from sin, or when I conform to the world and its desires, that by nature keeps me away from this book. And I don't know if that's helpful for you, but I know early on it was super helpful for me because it just reminded me when I found myself in sin that there's a place I need to go. And it's back to this book. It's not to have a reverent fear of this book and avoid it because I'm in sin, but to say this book is my hope. It is the guide to the God who loves me with all his heart. So take courage. Take a living hope this morning. The future starts now. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? The reason is I'm asking you to think about your own life. And if today you realize you've never given your life to Jesus, you've never said, God, I'm gonna put faith, I'm gonna give faith to what you did on the cross. And the scriptures say that when you and I do that, we are given the gift freely that our sins are washed away and that we have eternal life. And if that's you today, if you would like to come to the living hope, to Jesus, then you just pray a prayer in your heart. God hears you right where you are. He knows you. He created you. He hears you on the inside. If you're a believer in this room, you pray for those people right now. But right now, if that's you, that on the inside, you're like, I need a living hope, then you pray a prayer like this. Maybe repeat this after me. On the inside, God hears you. Jesus, today I give you me. I ask you to come into my life. Make me a new creation. Give me your Holy Spirit. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried in a grave, that you rose to new life because you were God. I ask you to wash me as white as snow because today, I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.